Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. Does the date October 19th, 2017 mean anything to you? Well, it was almost exactly six years ago. I think I had maybe... Good math. Good math. Thank you. Thank you. I'm known for that. Um, I think I had maybe like just arrived in Berlin. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, you were doing a uh, residency there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing else, though? Nothing podcast related? Say involving Gia Tolentino and Claire Bay Watkins in one of the century's most famous hashtags? Of course. That was our second episode, which we titled On Abuse, Harassment, and Harvey Weinstein. We happened to record it on the day that the Me Too hashtag was born. Yeah. Sunday, October 15th. And that was the day that Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. And that went totally viral. That phrase, I think it's important to point out, has been credited to Tarana Burke, a black woman and activist who created a nonprofit organization to help victims of abuse and named that movement Me Too. So anyway, we're we're bringing this up because today and recently uh, there has been a new round of of important and high profile Me Too related stories surfacing. Four women have accused the British comedian Russell Brand of sexual assault, an accusation he has denied, calling the relationships consensual. On September 7th, the actor Danny Masterson of that 70s show fame was convicted on two counts of rape and sentenced 30 years to life in prison. And on September 10th, Luis Rubiales, the president of the Spanish Soccer Federation, resigned after after giving an unwanted kiss to Women's World Cup winner Jennifer Hermoso. Have the men learned nothing? I would say it seems not. But what's your take? Well, I do have a take, but because I don't want to have this take all by myself, I'm thrilled to be joined for this discussion by Rebecca Mackay. Rebecca is the author of this year's New York Times bestselling, I Have Some Questions for You, as well as the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, and The Borrower, and the short story collection Music for Wartime. The Great Believers was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and received the ALA Carnegie Medal and the LA Times Book Prize, among other honors. A 2022 Guggenheim Fellow, Rebecca teaches graduate fiction writing at Northwestern, UNR Tahoe, and Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English, and she's the Artistic Director of Story Studio Chicago, and she lives in Chicago and Vermont. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Each of the cases that we cited in the intro have, for me, specific echoes of cases that, that began the Me Too movement. Uh, and also with the plot of your most recent novel, which Sugi was just talking about, uh, I have some questions for you. For instance, Danny Masterson was convicted of rape. He's going to prison. Um, how does that compare to Harvey Weinstein, who was also convicted of rape and is in prison now, as his case was the original impetus behind this whole movement? I mean, are these cases parallel? Can we learn anything from their repetition? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a shock to anyone that this is repetitive, right? Um, and I think that's something that, you know, it was certainly that repetition, that repetitiveness was really on my mind as I wrote this novel, but also in the years in which I wrote the novel, right? Um, I started thinking about this book in like 2018 and that was when, um, this initial wave of stuff was happening. It's, um, they're not all going to be exactly the same. And that's where we have to be careful about saying, well, this one's not as bad or this one is, different um we 
have to have room to make those distinctions, um, but that doesn't mean we are using those distinctions to diminish, which is a tricky balance, right? One of the things that I was thinking about the parallels between Masterson and, and Weinstein is like Weinstein, he was, a, he, well, he was protected by the old boy network of Hollywood, right? He had power, he was a producer, and so people were afraid to say things about the assaults that he made on them, women. And the similar thing with Masterson, although in his case, it was the Church of Scientology, because he's a member there, and the, the teachings of the church mm-hmm. are that you shouldn't report these kinds of things to the police, or report anything outside of the church. And so the women who were involved in eventually making these allegations said that they had all felt discouraged directly by the church or implicitly by the church from reporting what Masterson was doing. And it seemed like that happened also in the Weinstein case. Yeah, well, that is so, yes. But what's interesting is that what, that what has happened in both cases is that people have eventually talked. Um, that doesn't mean people are always going to feel free to, they're not always going to be listened to. Um, but this is what's shifted in the past six years, five years, right? Um, there were two things that really surprised me. Well, there were many things, but the two main things that really surprised me about Me Too, one was that it lasted. Because I really thought it was going to be like two days of this internet hashtag. And that then we were going to go back to not caring about this stuff and not listening and not believing stuff. So that was number one. Number two was the way that people were digging down. It wasn't just like the big, it wasn't just famous people. And it wasn't just the big, maybe capital T traumas. It was more nuanced things also. Um, maybe not necessarily persecutable things, but people talking about like, hey, this stuff happened in high school, this stuff happened in college, and it really upset me. And I guess three, uh, tying those all together, is that people were listening. It was not just about people expressing themselves, it was also about people listening. And certainly not everyone's listening, certainly not everyone feels free to speak, certainly we're not getting this all out there, but the the understanding that I think we're starting to have in these cases, and maybe, you know, social media is part of this, that you can reach a bigger audience faster when you have a problem, but we're starting to have this understanding that people might at least listen, which is, that's new. That's huge. And I feel like one sign of this, I mean, RIP Twitter, um, is we've, we've already talked <laughs> yeah. about this, but I mean, I do feel like you know, I log on to X and uh, I see. So, give you a range to... for us to pay for Twitter now that we're gonna. I, we don't have a no. lot of funds. We're gonna. No. We we'll have to sell we're some not, of our no. real estate. The podcast real estate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, sell some air. I feel like um, the 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 things that are trending, by the way, which is one of the reasons RIP Twitter, like only like fifty percent of them, or maybe less, is like even pertinent. But like Russell Brand was trending recently right. and, you know, he started as a comic who often talked about his drug and sex additions and he was in Forgetting Sarah Marshall in 2008. And then as one does, uh, he set up a YouTube channel in 2013. I do not. But anyway, as Russell Brand does, where he became a <laughs> You hero. do too have a YouTube channel, Sugi. We were just we talking about We have a YouTube this. channel. Anyway, okay. so he became a hero of the left in Britain. And then as one does, he shifted and became a vaccine denier and conservative nutjob. And then... Oh, always. And then in September, four alleged victims accused him of rape, sexual assault, and emotional abuse during a five-year period from 2006 to 2013. Is there an earlier Me Too figure who reminds you of that narrative arc? Or does he stand alone? Yeah, I mean, 
Right. Well, yeah, no, definitely, right? And, but here's you look at someone like Bill Cosby. That's who I thought too, of. Right. Right, right, right. And but we had years before Me Too. There was this like pile up of like all these women. I remember there was a cover of some magazine. Um, I can't remember which one that had like their. I don't know if it was their pictures it was New York or their magazine. names. Probably in a really. It was New York. Was magazine. it New York magazine? I thought it might have been. Yeah, and I, Lord knows how they felt about that. That probably was a whole problem in and of itself. But the, one of the effects you look at that is like all these women. All these women are saying the same thing. Um, but that was, you know, I think that was like in the aughts. We were not, when I say we, I, I don't mean me, but but the society, like we weren't ready to really go, oh my God, this is clearly real. Um, there was still that like, well, but they're all in it for the same thing, which is fame and glory or whatever it was that people thought, right? Fast track to wealth and success. Um but that maybe there's been a shift. I don't want to sound Pollyannish, believe me. But maybe there's been a shift to more of us sooner, more publicly believing when these stories come public. So I think that I was actually thinking of a different magazine story, which actually illustrates the shift that you're talking about. I think that it was New York Magazine that had a bunch of those accusers on the cover kind of supporting supporting that that case um which was more recent and so this makes me want to dig up the earlier the earlier story that you're talking about but even just like the notion that similar imagery would be would be portrayed for like almost opposite reasons right like um in the first instance kind of like some some sort of subtext of name and shame like the nerve of these women saying this thing about this yeah, I don't think that's what New York Magazine was doing. That was not my impression. It was more, I think they were saying, like, look at all these accusers. I think it was like, like, <clears throat> look at all these women saying the same thing. So we are talking about them. the same story. It's just that then I also... Okay. I think we are talking about the same story. It's just that then I look at that and go, God, I hope they had all those women's... I mean, it's one thing to, like, come forward. It's another thing when your name is put and, and image are put on the front of New York magazine. And like, you wonder how they felt about that. Um, because of course they are not in it for the fame and glory. Quite no. the opposite. <laughs> no one wants their name known in this regard. Right. Um, so it was more just like, God, I wonder what the, you know, the underbelly of that was and the effect for those women for that. But no, this was the story where they were like, look at this army of women say all saying the same thing. And that had a profound effect. I mean, it's not that I, I don't think I, at that point, certainly I didn't need to be convinced, but that still had a profound effect on me of my God, like why, you know, what is wrong with us societally that when this many people come forward, um, which should also be the case even if one person comes forward, but this many people come forward all saying the same thing and we're still not believing them. What is wrong with us? And if that, you know, although I was probably one of the last people who needed convincing, that still hit me really hard when that happened, when that appeared. Yeah, there was something about the number of faces. And yeah, in the case of Russell Brand, I mean, it's it's four. It's four people. And I think maybe that's how you get to know... You know, like I remember being so astonished and I mean, I can't say delighted given the circumstances, but like like Mm. Chanel Miller was taken and has been taken so seriously as as, um, you know, both someone telling that particular story of um, 
of being assaulted and, yeah. and also as a writer, right? She was sort of immediately taken seriously as a writer. And I could just imagine like the way that, you know, if I'd, I can't like imagine how that might have gone for her if it were 30 years earlier. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. One thing about the Russell Brand case, and we're going to move on to the last one we want to talk about, is you know this was happening. This happened all pre the accusations are all pre the Me Too movement. So, um, but you do I do notice that there is a movement for guys who have been accused of things like this that you go hide on the right. You go you go move over to the right and you say like oh this is a free speech mm. issue or this is right like that it's not it does not seem to me uh, unconnected that uh, that he's being accused of these things from 2006 to 2013 and then around, you know, and sometime after that was when he moved, became a conservative, right? Because he's going to Uh receive less criticism in that, in that area. Right. And he, and he probably at some point knows this is coming. Uh, I don't know. I I feel like Mm -hmm. there are other uh, figures that I can think of to do that. I'm forgetting the name of the guy who was in like Romania, who was a conservative uh, blogger and then got arrested by Romanian police. Yeah. being with underage women. They caught him with a pizza box, right? Yes, like that guy. In... Yeah. Idiot pizza box yeah. guy. He's not yeah. a guy whose name I really want to yeah. know. We'll look it up, maybe. No, I don't have room for that, that in my head. <laughs> but yeah. he's in that category for me, right? I don't, I don't, I think there are, there have yeah. been others, you know? Um, and I think it's notable the the political valences. I mean, obviously the cost for someone in the, in on the, on the democratic side is much high. a man, you know, is, is yeah. much higher than if you're on the Republican side, like President Trump, who is also, you know, uh, a, yeah. a sexual assaulter and has been convicted of sexual assault and yet still yeah. has not borne any cost among his voters. And I think, you know, it might not be that they're even crafty enough to be doing this strategically so much as them going, well, these people over here are defending people who did nothing wrong, just like I did nothing wrong. Like, you know, look at this witch hunt for this guy who did a a thing that I think is perfectly normal. And the people on this one side are after him. And the people, the nice people over here on the right are coming to his defense because he's a good guy and I see myself in him. And and then it's, you know, convenient that they're ending up in that shelter when things break too. But I, 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 that, that sort of Machiavellian part of it I hadn't thought of before. That is really interesting. Well, one guy who doesn't have any excuses for not having learned from the Me Too movement is Luis Rubiales, who's the head of Spanish Soccer Federation. And he very awkwardly and very publicly kissed a soccer player, Jennifer Hermoso. He's not going to go to jail like Masterson, but he did lose his job. His conduct was seen clearly inappropriate. Um, I wondered if we could think about this case in relationship to other earlier Me Too cases as well. Did he remind you of anyone? (laughs) <laughs> Did he remind? I feel like you're like a psychiatrist holding up an ink blot. I know. Uh, <laughs> like, just remind you of anything. <laughs> I just think it's interesting yeah, to yes, compare these things. cases and and the the repetition, as you're saying, like there there are these there yeah. are tropes in this that 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 uh, that that repeat, and I think there's something meaningful in that. There is, yeah, yeah. No, this. I mean, to me, it's like right that that. Like I was saying at the beginning, there's this kind of, of course, this sliding scale, this spectrum of all of these behaviors. Um, And you can, you know, on the one hand, you can look at that and say, that is not Harvey Weinstein. Definitely, right? But um, 
is it in that, you know, same arena, that, that same soccer arena? Is it, you know, is that something that, you know, that puts, what does that do to this woman publicly, privately? What does that do to her career? What does that do to her sense of safety? What example is he setting? How is he using his power? They're all in the same, you know, it's in that same ballpark. Um, And I think that anyone who wants to kind of put that in context and get perspective on it, think about what your reaction would be if he did that to a man, to a straight man. And, you know, let's say he was, you know, whether he's gay, straight, whatever, does that to a man what is your reaction? Is your reaction, well, boys will be boys, haha. Is your, is your reaction, that is extremely inappropriate and harming to that other man's career, self-worth, reputation, um, to just, you know, be overtaken like that physically in public. Um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, the homophobia might, might play into that. I'm just saying, you know, like to take someone's bodily autonomy from them publicly and if you have, you know, I think for anyone, if they have a different reaction thinking about that happening to a young woman versus happening to a man, um, that's, it's needed perspective, I think, just to, to readjust. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm just saying, you know, like, like if you have a different reaction for the, to one than the other, that's something that, you, you know, you need to examine um, why you might have felt more comfortable with one simply because you've seen it a million times. I feel like there's something also about this particular one, and I think about what you're saying about kind of um, like the ways that this is excused. Like this was a celebratory moment. There is also like this tradition of like the cel- the non consensual celebratory oh, kiss. Yeah. Like wait, we see it happen at like award ceremonies. Adrian Brody, yeah, exactly. There's like that famous um, World War II picture, right, where she's getting. Uh, like he's bending her over and kissing her, which we now know with kind yeah. of like the the we know that that wasn't um, consensual. And this is like one of the most famous images and like no one wants, no one wants to hear the real story because it, it messes up this, this image that's so joyful and convenient. Um, what about and- Kavanaugh? Well, I don't think there was anything celebratory there. No, no, no it wasn't <laughs> celebratory, but he was, you know, <laughs> displaying himself. That was the, the you know, it, it, you know, uh, right. Yeah. Wasn't that the deal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I it was, tried to sorry, yeah. this is what the show that. is about. No. Yeah. It was, but it was also, there, that was actually also pinning someone down. There, yeah, there were several true. different right. things there. Yeah. Um, but no, I think there was, no, there was no celebratory anything there except for his celebrating his own love for beer in front of the Senate. That was a, a weird moment. Um, but um, no, I mean, so again, like, you know, apples, oranges, but we're still in the produce section. <laughs> like this is still, um, I like that. Right. You have a scene in the you have a scene right. in the book where um, Bodie is talking about instances where men, you know, displayed their penises to her without her wanting to, and that happened. Yeah. You know, I believe that that happens quite frequently in college, at least back in the day. Oh, it's not just college, right? And I was writing about high school, which is you know certainly. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, not just that. No, I think any just about any woman. You know, uh, you ask about personal experience and it's like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, it's yeah, it it might have been, you know, it it could be school setting. It could be, um, you know, in some cases, 
could be a professional setting, can also be, and that the thing that gets really hard to talk about, can also be instances of mental illness on the street, um, which, you know, we kind of have to think about a bit differently, um, even if it is part of the same conversation. But just about, I mean, I, I don't know that I know of a woman who has not had that experience. I'll say yeah. that. Um, yeah. So um, why did Kavanaugh and that get to was, skate that, and Rubiales get, lose his job? Because Kavanaugh was being voted on by Republican senators. I mean, that's... So it goes back to the right-left That's basically why. There. Yeah, and, and also what a private... Not private, I don't know who owns... What is soccer? Is soccer private, public? Anyway, it's, it's an independent corporation that has a reputation to protect, that is a business fundamentally, um, and that is going to make, um, hopefully for the right reasons, but is making partly a business decision and a decision about its public reputation. Um, hopefully... They also really, really stand by that decision, um, whereas the GOP, members of the GOP, um, do not feel that same pressure, apparently, because they feel like their voters don't care, which they might not. I don't know. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Wow. I mean, I feel like you just said, and I think you're right, that it is more possible to hold corporations accountable for their bad conduct than it is to hold the GOP accountable for its bad conduct. Yeah. And I think that that's right. I mean, Roger Ailes went down, right? And he's at, he was at Fox, but that was a corporation same way, right? And whereas GOP politicians Mm -hmm. did not suffer the same kind of consequences that he did. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. People are, maybe they're more scared of shareholders than they're scared of voters. Um, or, you know, uh, confident that people are going to keep voting the same way, confident that voters um, have a, enough of a sort of sports team mentality in who they vote for, um, that something like this is not going to, you know, might, might annoy them, but it's not going to sway them to the other side. Uh, yeah. I think that's why DeSantis uh, talks about woke capitalism all the time, because an actual corporation has to sell things to people can't say, hey, we cannot afford to piss off 60% of our audience. You know, we have to actually pay attention mm-hmm. to what they're going to say. Whereas the GOP. Well, you can disenfranchise, you can disenfranchise voters, which like, we, you know, which they're doing. Um, but you can't actually, like, it's easier to disenfranchise a voter in this country than it is to take away the power of your wallet, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is also disturbing. But... I feel like we're we're talking here in some way just to bring it all back to the craft elements. Mm-hmm. Um, to we're talking sort of about rhyming action mm-hmm. as like the Me Too movement, and I also want to talk a little bit about retrospection because that seems like one of the things that keeps coming up. Like as these stories get told, um, I feel like a lot of the novels that I read about the in which I see this, um, there is some kind of like looking back, right? Like. Um, like Bodhi is returning to the place where where she was a student. And so like here, you know, we're drawing these comparisons, not just for historical interest, you know, because patterns are still repeating. And then also like when accusations do surface, they take a really long time, right? Like the crimes that Danny Masterson and Russell Brander accused of happened before 2017. And then it, it just like in sort of like looking back with this long view, 
people are finding the courage to report or the environment has changed or or what is it that is um, that is making it possible for these stories to emerge? Because, I mean, the other thing that I don't know, like I feel like is in the back of my head when I think about like, oh, things that happened long ago that I would like accountability for. I'm always like, oh, statutes of limitations, (laughs) like the way that I can tell the story has like run out or, you know, and and actually here people are going back Um, like Danny Masterson stuff. And, and Russell Brand's, um, those allegations are so, they're quite long ago. Yeah. And, um, and it's kind of heartening that, I mean, it's very heartening that it's, it's possible to still tell that story. And in fact, maybe that, that distance is actually what makes it possible. I think it probably is. It's partly the distance of just, you know, emotional distance, right? You feel stronger later. You feel up to this. You're an older person. You have more resources. It can also be the distance of, you know, in many cases, you know, everyone else kind of waiting, holding, and then one person comes forward. And that's what enables everyone else to come forward. So it's just kind of that, that waiting game, you know, once one person has the courage to do that. Um, It's also got to be, you know, just shifting perspectives. Because for, for me, a lot of the looking back on me too, and a lot of what I was channeling in writing this novel was looking back on things where like I'll give you an example a very specific example um and I've told this story before and I don't really care who hears it but um my senior year of high school this kid just you know exposed himself in like the senior lounge and like just you know pulled it out in front of a bunch of people and I was the one person sitting there who kind of put up my hand and went ew put that back And everyone else was laughing, like, this is the most hilarious thing. Um, And then the next day, um, a sophomore girl comes up to me in the hall and goes, I know who you are. You're the one who was like, ew, ew, like, clearly, you know, had been hearing this, you know, like the story is about me, right? The story is about I'm a prude. I did this embarrassing thing. I made a mistake, right? And I internalized that for years, um, you know, in the way that you do, where you're just like, you you have, you know, kid logic, because I was like 17, right? Um, and you go, I guess that's the way things are. Um, and really, you know, up until like 2017, would have maybe looked back on that and been like, yeah, I really did the wrong thing. I really made a social gaffe there. I was such a nerd. Um, that was one of the things that with me too, because I, I dealt with bigger, with far bigger traumas in my life, much more overtly, right? But it, that was something I just hadn't revisited. And you start, you look back and you go, oh my God. It's not that that was, you know, it's not, it's not so much that the, the moment itself was life altering, but what that girl said to me was, and I really, that shift with me too, this is nothing, no one can be held accountable for any of this stuff. These were kids. This was like, we're not going after this, this random guy, right? Um, But you have a different understanding, not only because you're older, but because of just shifting understandings in society, shifting conversations. Um, This realization for me, that not only was, of course, it was fine for me not to be okay with that, but probably no one was okay with that. And we were all just uh, socializing each other into pretending we were okay with it. Yeah. 
which is, you know, horrifying. I guess it's like the Me Too version of like, what is it called? Bystander syndrome or something where like someone is having a crisis and there's too many people around and everyone thinks someone else is going to do something. And so everyone's yes. just kind of frozen yeah. in action. Yeah. And then all it takes is, yeah, I would like to go back and talk to Rebecca in well, high school and say, I agree with you. Right. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of these same themes are, of course, in your novel, which is set in high school. And I want to shift here to talk a little bit about the attention that uh, violence against women generates in entertainment culture, which is also um, something that you talk about in I Have Some Questions for yeah. You. The book is told from the point of view of Bodie Kane, a podcaster and film professor whose roommate, Thalia Keith, died during their senior year at a private school named Granby. When the novel opens, Bodie is returning to Granby to teach at a podcasting class. So could you just talk to us a little bit of this passage we'll have you read and then and then we'll follow up after you're done? Yeah. So what's happening here is um, they are in this podcasting class and Bodie has asked the students since they have a very short amount of time to do a podcast on something relating to school history. Um, this way they can interview teachers, should be nice and easy, and she even gave them a list of potential topics. And she did, for reasons she doesn't even quite understand, she did throw the 1995 murder of Thalia Keith, her former roommate, onto that list. Um, and we have this student named Britt who is about to get involved. After class, Britt hung back near the door, waiting out Alder's monologue about the links he planned to send me to his favorite music criticism podcasts and his favorite documentary series, and also a podcast where the earliest blogs of the late 90s were read aloud. He blew Britt a kiss as he left, an actor floating out of a party held in his honor. I, um, Britt said, looking at the floor and then over my shoulder. Okay, this is no offense, but like, I know you do a lot of true crime on your podcast, and I think it's a problematic genre. She waited as if I were supposed to repent. I said, that comes up, but we're following the workings of the studio system, not chasing gore. I'm concerned about the tropes of true crime, the way it's turned into entertainment. That's sharp of you, I said. It's definitely a matter of approach. When we fetishize things, right, no, I listen to your podcast and I get, even when you did the Patricia Douglas thing or the Black Dahlia thing, I get that you're doing, it's more about structures and like I said, no offense, I just see so much fetishizing and I don't want to be another white girl giggling about murder. I said, most violent crime is remarkably boring. I pulled out a chair and sat back down, gestured to Brit to do the same, but she didn't, just stood tugging her backpack straps. I went into my panelist answer. The vast majority of murders are two young men getting into an altercation. One kills the other. You dig deep on unsolved crimes or quote unquote interesting crimes. And most of what you find is a man killing his partner. So either you talk structural racism, domestic violence, policing issues, or you end up picking one story that's interesting in specific ways, usually in ways that break those molds. One concern is that those cases are misrepresentative. And sure, there's a temptation to sensationalize things. Are you... I expected to find her glazed over, but she wasn't blinking. Are you interested in pursuing this as a subject? Britt said, like also me as a white person, if I wanted to tell the story of a white person's murder, then I'm ignoring the violence done to black and brown bodies. But I can't tell a story of violence against people of color because I'm white and that would be appropriation. She sounded frustrated. 
I shouldn't have been surprised that she talked like an Oberlin freshman who cared deeply but hadn't fully worked things out. I used to teach undergrads after all, but it felt so incongruous here at Granby, where we'd all once spoken with such blithe, hurtful carelessness, and hadn't that been just yesterday? I said, I really don't think that's appropriation, and honestly, this is for a small audience. I gestured at the bare trees outside the window, hoping Britt would see what I did, that we were in the woods, not, as it certainly felt to a 12th grader, at the center of the universe. She said, in that email, you had two murders, the one from the 70s and the one from the 90s. I was thinking I'd do one of those, but I could feel my pulse in my neck. It was like being a child in an audience as the magician asked for volunteers, utterly terrified he'd pick you, but also thrilled he might. Whether I could admit it or not, I wanted this girl to look directly at Thalia's death in a way I myself couldn't, out of closeness, out of trauma, out of irrational fear that my former classmates would think me presumptuous. No, that Thalia herself would somehow find me presumptuous. And at the same time, and for some of those same reasons, I wanted to stop her. I regretted putting Thalia on the list. I thought I could maybe steer Brit toward Barbara Crocker in 1975, the boyfriend they found hiding in the woods right near campus, his remarkably light sentence. But Brit said, I know you were friends. I'm sorry? You and Thalia Keith. Okay, so I take journalism and we have access to the Sentinel archives. I got into the story last year and I read everything from the paper and I did the deep dive online, all the Reddit boards. You found my name on Reddit? Thank you so much. Yeah. It's amazing to hear those. Yeah, the two, you read the two voices so beautifully. Um, there's <laughs> an interesting, yeah, I mean, there's a. And first of all, we do, I want to stop and say, like, this is the first ever fictional depiction of a podcasting class that I've ever read. And Sue and hey, I hey. do teach a podcasting class together. So it was very exciting to, uh, to hear that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Um, I've learned, you know, in the time that it took me to write this book, which was like five years, um, there have been kind of in the genre of like, maybe more entertainment driven crime fiction that comes out a little faster, that people write a little faster. There have been a whole like bunch of uh, books with podcast host detectives. Um, but they all came out like between when I started writing it and when I finished because this kind of book takes forever. Um, so it's like, I'm not hopping on any bandwagon here. But not a class. Come um, on. Let's just get the, the but pedagogy. But not a class. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe it's just that the, the culture is beginning to understand the importance of podcasts even more than before. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm thinking of like, yeah, like only murders, only murders in the building totally. has a... Has a and also actually does, um, I mean, address violence in certain ways. Yeah. So there's an interesting and complicated awareness in your passage, in your book, about what I would call, for lack of a better term, the dark side of, I don't know that it's the dark side of the Me Too movement, but it's sort of like the, namely that, you know, you've, we've, there are people like Tarana Burke who originated the term Me Too, people like that fighting against sexual violence. And at the same time, there is a huge audience and actually like also an entire podcasting industry engage in examining and publicizing that violence yeah. so there's right I, and we had um i'm also thinking of you know we had alice bullen on on to talk about um her book dead girls yeah. um and 
there's been some interesting critiques about this, but I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. Here's how. To, what I'll say is, there are so many aspects here where I'm deeply conflicted, and when I find something I'm deeply conflicted about tends to mean it's going to be a good subject for me to write about. I really don't want to sit there and work for five years on a novel about something that has an easy answer or that I've already made up my mind about, right? So in this case, I, you know, one of these things is simply, you know, the true crime podcast as a topic. Like there are ones that have done actually tremendous good in the world, um, there are cases that have been solved. There are Jane Doe's that have been identified. There are marginalized victims who were not going to get a Dateline special, whose cases have been studied, their stories have been told. Um, and people, you know, may, I think one, honestly, um, one side effect of a lot of this is the more people talk about this, listeners, especially younger women, becoming aware of the patterns of domestic violence and the ways that it escalates. Um so there's absolutely good that's come out of it. There's also this lurid, gross side of things of like, you know, the younger and prettier and richer and whiter and more feminine and all these things the victim is, the more it becomes this like, you know, for, first of all, the more centralized it becomes, which you'd think might be good because then, oh, we have this attention on the case, but also is this gross fetishized like perfect victim kind of thing that is so alarming. Um, and, you know, it, it like, you know, we can re-traumatize victims' families. We can get crime scenes messed up. We get investigations messed with. We get um, suspects harassed. Um, and then you get listeners just thinking the world is a much more dangerous place, actually, than it is. Um, this idea that, like, everyone's going to get murdered, right? Um, so... There's that. And I'm also, honestly, there's stuff with the Me Too that I feel conflict over because I do have an example in the book yeah. of someone who at least my protagonist really believes is being unfairly targeted online. Her ex-husband is being kind of Me Tooed for stuff that she does not think crossed the line. Um, and I think we all have those moments of the like the one story where it's like, well, but this one is different. Like, but Aziz Ansari is different. Um, and then how do we reconcile that? How do those things coexist? Um, uh, and even also just I that idea of holding those people accountable. In the book, I mean, I thought they were really that that those are those are existing in dissonance, and they don't have to be resolved necessarily. Right, exactly. That's the thing. That's the great thing about fiction, because if I were writing an essay or a nonfiction book or a tweet, um, I would feel like I had to really come down with a thesis statement um, or, you know, really draw a line somewhere, make a statement or like toe the line of what, you know, we feel like we all need to say this or else it's going to dilute the cause. Um, we can't acknowledge that we're okay with Aziz Ansari because then we're saying that, you know, that you can, you know, divide these things up or that it's all okay or something. In fiction, I can say all those things. They can all coexist. Um, and, you know, ideal because the, the job of fiction is not to answer anyone's question necessarily. I think it's to ask better questions. Um, it's to, for me, it's to take the questions that I have and then complicate those questions um, and, you know, hand them off to you, hopefully in a way that is helpful rather than just confusing. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, those contradictions exist. And I think that um, we don't do ourselves any favors when we try to pretend that they don't. I just wanted to say that I thought you did a great job of talking about the like archive of YouTube material and stuff that rises up around Thalia Keefe's case, right? That mm. Bodhi like sometimes looks at, sometimes doesn't, feels nervous about, but also examines, you know, and interacts with. Um, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, we've talked about time and why it's taken so long for some of these cases to come out. And this is certainly the case with Thalia Keith, right? She, this is, the book is, you know, re-looking at this murder from Bodhi's point of view many years later. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the things that I write about war and so does Sugi, and one of the things that war trauma does is mess with time in the way that the readers deal mm. with, and the way that the writers try to depict it, but in the way that human beings experience trauma, you know, like, you suppress an incident, you don't think about it for a long time, like it messes with time. And it seems that these sorts of instances of violence also do that. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that in in the book yeah. and the way that you dealt with time. Yeah, I'm always obsessed. All of my fiction is obsessed with time um, in, in various ways. Um, and I think, I mean, partly because life itself is obsessed with time, but um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, more a topic of my fiction than, um, than other things are. And then I, then I, you know, not every writer is maybe as obsessed with time. Um, I was interested here definitely in that kind of cognitive dissonance of really not feeling like time has passed um, since your adolescence in particular. For all of us, our adolescence takes up an enormous percentage of our memories um, and it has this enormous weight on who we think we are, who you were as an adolescent affects your self-esteem and your sense of self in your 40s in a way that who you were at 23 doesn't, right? Um, for most people, unless something really dramatic happened that year. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And what does it mean to then um, kind of be thrust back into that? But at the same time that it feels like no time has passed to realize how dramatically mores have changed, how dramatically the conversation has changed, um, which of course happens to anyone in the course of any life. Um, but as I was writing this, it was, you know, specifically a very big shift, I think, for for most of us um, over at least a certain age, thinking about the way things are and then looking back at, at what, say, high school had been. Um, that was one aspect. And the other aspect there was the, that idea of accountability, that idea of how do you go back and hold someone accountable for something they did when they were very young or a very long time ago, um, are you the same person? Are they the same person? What does that mean? Accountability as a concept really assumes that we are the same person who made the decisions that were made. Um, and there's no other way to do it, right? You can't just say, well, that was yesterday. So <laughs> no, no prison time for you for 17 murders, right? Like, um, but, but people change, right? And like, I say at some point in the book, she's looking at someone and thinking like, no cell of that person's body is the same. Um, this person has had this, you know, enormous life since what happened then is it the same person. Um, Another area where I have no answers at all, but that I felt like needed to be part of that same conversation, you know, like that's that doesn't seem to really enter into the picture when we talk about Me Too 
Um, we talk sometimes about like, well, times were different back then, understandings were different, which is a legitimate conversation to have, um, even if it's not always a legitimate excuse. Um, but I don't know that we talk enough, or I don't know that we need to. We just we just don't tend to talk about what does it mean to be the same person decades on? Uh, what is your relationship to your past self? And then what is our relationship to the accountability of the past self? Um, probably, you know, there's some philosopher out there who has made a life study out of this and could tell us a lot of stuff, but I just have questions about it. <laughs> um, well, Rebecca, as you, as you intended, you have left us with complicated questions in better form for us to think about lots of lots of stuff to continue to mull um, as me too as me too goes on um, and listeners we recommend you go pick up a copy of I have some questions for you and the rest of Rebecca's fiction and Rebecca thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it thank you so much this was a lot of fun that's it for the fiction nonfiction podcast this podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf our theme music is composed by Travis Workman you can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!